Good morning. I'm Matt Moseson. Uh, please rise as I read the um, scripture from Mark 3, verses 7 through 19. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to he, who he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It's good to see you. Welcome to Disciples Church. Uh, my name is Jonathan Mosher. It's my privilege to, um, to read the word with you, to talk about it this morning. And so we're so glad that you joined us. So glad that you're here today. Uh, and if you're not already turned there, if you can turn in your Bible to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 3, and I just want to open us in a word uh, of prayer as we dive in this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together as brothers and sisters to take time away from the cares of this week. Lord, we come into this morning with distractions, with other things on our mind, with, with thoughts of what's happened in our jobs, in our families, in our nation, in our city, in our state. And God, in this moment, Lord, as we think about all of those things, would we come to the realization that outside of our relationship with you and outside of who you are, that we have no hope and we have no peace, but that in you, we have perfect peace and perfect rest. And so God, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, as we learn about you together this morning, as we study you uh, this morning, I pray that your spirit would do the work of applying those truths to our heart that we most desperately need to learn, bring comfort where there needs to be comfort, bring hope where there needs to be hope, bring challenges where there needs to be a challenge. And Lord, we'll trust you to do the things that only you can do because you promised in your word that you would do them. And so we thank you for the, for the assurance that we have as we come into your word this morning. And so it's in your name, the name above all names that we pray, the name of Jesus, amen. I want to start this morning with a question uh, for you to consider, and I don't know if you've ever felt this, but have you ever felt totally unqualified for a job that you walked into? And some of you are answering immediately no, because that's just kind of your personality, and you walk in and you own the place, you feel totally comfortable with, the, with, with any job, with anything that's put in front of you. You could walk into an industry where you've never worked a day in your life, and you're just the kind of person where you'll just figure it out on the fly, and you're really confident. But for most of us, that is not the case. 
For most of us, there is a sense, at least at some point in your working life, where maybe you walked into a job, you walked into a new scenario, and you felt totally overwhelmed by what you experienced. You felt out of place. You felt like, like you had no control or influence. You just felt over your head. I remember the very first time that I preached uh, a sermon. Uh, I remember getting up in the small church um, in which I was ministering at the time, and I remember, um, I, I remember still being in college and kind of having just gone through classes that talked about how to prepare a sermon and how to deliver a sermon and the things that you want to think through. And so I'm approaching every word and every sentence through this lens of what a properly delivered sermon looks like. And as I think back about that sermon and the things that I said, I remember very little about it other than all of the horrible things that I said that had nothing to do with the text. And on top of that, just the absolutely painful delivery. Now, hopefully, I've improved a little bit as the years have gone on, um, but I remember in that moment thinking, what in the world are you doing? Like, by nature, I, I was never a person who really wanted to be in front of people. That was never something that really appealed to me. I'm an introvert by nature, and so there were all of these things to me that were just leaping out as going, man, this is not the career path for you. Turn around while you can. Figure out some job where you're in a back room, where you're closed away from people, where you never have to, have to interact with other human beings, because that's probably where you should be. But I don't know if you've ever had a, a moment like that. My guess is most of us have. And even if you haven't had that moment where maybe you actually were qualified for the job that you walked into, maybe you had the right level of education, maybe you'd gone to school to study a particular trade or a particular craft, maybe you walked into the workplace with the kind, uh, with the kind of qualifications that any employer would be looking for, there might still be some part of you that says, if people actually knew how little I know what I'm doing, they would be terrified that I'm in the role that I am. In fact, we have a name for it, right? The name for it is imposter syndrome, if you've ever heard that term before. And a lot of people really struggle with that whole idea of, man, I'm in this role, I have this job, but it seems like, at least on the surface, on the, on the externals, it seems like everybody else knows what they're doing way more than I am. And so there's this constant state of living, living really in fear. That what externally might appear to others as competence has a whole stream of things flowing underneath it where you just feel like you don't know what you're doing. And so your whole life to this point might have just been that kind of fake it till you make it mentality. If I can just get to retirement without anybody realizing that I don't actually know how to do my job, I'll be all set. And the, the fear of rejection for many people, is based on at least a seeming lack of qualification. And my experience has been that there are a lot of Christians who have experienced a very similar sort of imposter syndrome in their Christian walk, where they say the right things and they've made a profession of faith and they know when in the course of a service to stand up or maybe raise hands or bow their heads or close their eyes. They can... They can do all of the things externally that people might be looking for as evidence of them actually being a Christian. But in their heart, for one reason or another, there is a sense that they just don't know what they're doing. They don't know who they are. They feel so far from being a qualified Christian, if I can use that terminology, that they live in constant fear of being 
exposed. And so the question for us this morning as we look at this text from Mark chapter 3 beginning in verse 7 is this, what qualifies us for the role in the ministry that God has called us to? What actually provides our qualification? What is our standing based on? What is our identity built in? And this is what we find beginning in Mark chapter 3 starting in verse 7. Here's what the text says. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Now what Mark's doing in this passage is he's painting a picture of the chaos that is surrounding Jesus Christ in this moment. Because even as the Pharisees and the Herodians were now plotting to kill, to murder Jesus for his claims to be God, his claims of authority, his claims over all time and creation and declaring himself the Lord of the Sabbath, his claims of authority over the spiritual world and the casting out of demons and the forgiveness of sins, his claims of authority over the physical world by virtue of healings. Even as, as, as the Herodians and the Pharisees are plotting murder against him, Jesus Christ's fame continues to grow. And look at the extent of how his fame is growing. It says that people were coming from Galilee. This is the place where Jesus is actually ministering. It's a place in the, in the north of the kingdom of Israel. This is made up of backwater villages. These are blue-collar workers, largely uneducated. These are people who didn't have a, a lot in terms of uh, physical material goods, nor did they have a lot in terms of what people would consider uh, intellectual qualifications. But they were coming to Jesus. We're told that people were coming from Judea and Jerusalem. This is the capital city. This is a cosmopolitan area. The people are educated. The people, by and large, have a fair amount of wealth as compared to the rest of the nation. People are coming from Idumea, this, this, this portion of the land just south of Judea. Again, largely as educated, but with much more of a Gentile influence. People are coming from beyond the Jordan, literally the other side of the Jordan River, where all of these Gentile nations were gathered, these ten large Gentile cities, and people were flocking across the river to meet and encounter Jesus. People are coming from Tyre and Sidon, large Gentile cities in the north. People were traveling great distances. I mean, sometimes I think we view the lens of what's happening uh, in the Gospels as a very narrow and small one. Do you understand that the fame of Jesus had spread unlike anyone else, any, any other countryman that he would have encountered at this time? His name was known well outside of the nation in which he lived. People were very quickly coming to realize that there was something different about Jesus. And because of all the stories that they had heard, because of all the, all the tales that they've heard of his healings and his teachings and all of these different things, people are flocking to see him. So much so, the crowd is so massive at this point that we're told in verse 7 that Jesus is actually trying to withdraw. He's actually trying to get away from the crowds. He wants to get alone. He wants to be with his father. He wants to be with the disciples. He's trying to get away from the crowds. But as soon as the crowds find out where he's headed, they head the very same place. And all throughout the book of Mark and all throughout the Gospels, we have, we have recorded stories like this one where these large crowds started to gather. So much so that Jesus is afraid that he might actually physically be crushed 
by the number of people who are pressing in towards him. And the temptation, had you and I been there at this time, the temptation might have been to think, Jesus, how amazing is this? Look at all of these people who are coming to see you, all of these people who are coming to hear you, all of these people who just want to touch you, who want to physically be near you. Isn't this an incredible demonstration of who you are? But Jesus was not impressed. Because as he's trying to get away from the crowds and as they continue to follow him, what we realized very quickly is that the crowds didn't care about Jesus, largely speaking. They cared about what he could give them. They were largely unconcerned with Jesus' needs, with his needs for rest. Even later on, we find out his needs for food. And in fact, most of the time when we see, the, when we see descriptions of the crowds in the Gospels, what we find out very quick, quickly is that is not usually conveyed as a good thing. The crowds that were gathered generally are not, are not revealed to be people who have good intention and a good, healthy desire to know and love Jesus Christ. No, what they largely came for were the demonstrations of power. Jesus, break some bread for us. Do that thing that you did where you fed 5,000 people. Jesus, can you heal this man? I want to see that personally. I want to see that happen. And even though he was meeting very real needs in their lives... These were largely people who had, who had shown no indication that they loved Jesus. Look what verse 11 says. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, You are the Son of God. And look at Jesus' response. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Now this is interesting in this moment because Because the picture that's being drawn for us is that as Jesus would come up to someone who is possessed by a demon, that person, almost of no volition of their own, would fall on their face in reverence for God and would declare out in this moment, you are the Son of God. And rather than Jesus pointing to this as an example of his deity, of his divinity, of his authority over all things, Jesus looks at these these people possessed by spirits and says to the spirits, you are to be silent. Now why is it that Jesus would do that. There's at least two reasons. The first is Jesus wanted his words and his works to speak for themselves. He wanted people to hear the message that he was delivering about the kingdom of God that he was ushering in, the kingdom of God that was present in him. He wanted people to hear the declarations that he was making about the salvation he was going to bring, about the goodness and the mercy and the grace of the Father. He wanted them to hear those words. He wanted people to see his works and be convinced in their hearts that what they were encountering was, in fact, the Son of God. And secondly, Jesus didn't think that he needed the accolades of demons to help his earthly ministry. And then we find this very interesting verse 13. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Now what's happening in this verse is the official calling of the twelve disciples. And Jesus here goes up to the mountain. We've talked about this briefly before, but this is a pattern that we see in the life of Jesus where he is constantly in a rhythm of being with people and ministering to them and then going away to be with his Father. Luke chapter 6 and verse 12 gives us an indication of what Jesus actually did when he went up into the mountain, which is that he spent an entire night praying. 
Jesus leaves this crowd. He goes off by himself up into this mountain and he spends time praying, spending time with his father. He spends time praying all night before calling these 12 men. And why does he do that? Because undoubtedly, Jesus recognized the importance of what he was about to do. Because in calling these 12 men, Jesus was determining whom he was going to spend almost all of his time with. He was determining the individuals whose lives he was going to personally, impactfully spend his, spend his time and pour himself out into. And he was also establishing these men who were going to carry the gospel into the world. And in doing this, in this demonstration where Jesus calls the disciples, it's emblematic of the fact that Jesus is always the one who takes the initiative to call his people. It is always Jesus Christ who chooses. It is always Jesus Christ who pursues. It is always Jesus Christ who chases. He doesn't open it up and ask for volunteers because undoubtedly there would have been dozens in that massive crowd of people who would have said, I'll volunteer to be with you, Jesus, having no idea what it was they were actually going to do. But instead, Jesus pursues, he calls, he woos individuals to himself. And notice whom he, cho whom he chooses. Because he didn't pick those with years of religious education. He didn't pick individuals who had the right pedigree. He didn't choose those who already had a title or who had the requisite experience. Because Jesus was wholly unimpressed with those accomplishments. What's interesting to notice about these 12 men that are listed is that of the 12, 11 of the men all come from the north. These are men who are largely uneducated, men who did not have a great deal of religious experience, men who did not have experience within the religious institutions of the day. These were men who would not have been impressive to the human eye. But like Jesus always does, he chooses those whom we would not expect. And by extrapolation in this context, he overlooks the, looks many of those whom we would expect. Now notice what it says in verse 14. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might, now notice the order, so that they might, one, be with him, and he might, two, send them out to preach, and three, have authority to cast out demons. So those whom Jesus called were, in fact, disciples. These are followers of Jesus Christ. These are men who had been with him. They had heard him preach. They'd spent time with him. They'd served him. They'd helped him. They'd been around his ministry. But these men specifically were given an entirely unique title, which was that of apostle. An apostle, in a literal sense, means messenger. It means sent ones. But in this context, it's talking specifically about those who were given authority, by virtue of their being with Jesus Christ, they were given the opportunity to preach and proclaim the gospel. They were given authority to cast out demons. But I want you to look at the charge that they were given because the order here is vital. Notice the very first thing that it says is a description of these men who are going to be apostles. So that they might be with him. And as a result of that, that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And in the words of one commentator, fellowship with Jesus must precede preaching 
about him. Do you understand that to be with Christ is the ordinary divine calling of the Christian? And if you heard the words that I just said, they're seemingly contradictory. Ordinary and divine. That Jesus' invitation to you as a follower, as a disciple, as as one who knows him, his invitation to you is to be with him. It's an intimate relationship. It's spending time with him. It's knowing him. It's talking to him. It's all of those things that we think about most often when we think about the disciplines of the Christian life, when we think about when we think about reading our Bible where we hear from God, when we think about praying where we talk to God, when we think about resting and being silent before him where we spend time with him, when we think about all of the disciplines of the Christian life, do you realize that ultimately they are all in service of an intimate relationship with Christ? And do you realize how divine and amazing that invitation is? That his invitation to you as a follower, his invitation to you as a self-proclaimed Christian, if you are a Christian in this room today, his invitation to you is to be with him, that you get to be with God. So in one sense, yes, it is divine, but two, do you understand that that is also the most ordinary thing in the world for the Christian? It's the everyday grace of our Savior inviting us to be with him. This isn't reserved for the religious elite. It's not reserved for pastors. It's not, re- it's not reserved for those who have extraordinary gifting or skill sets or experience. It is for the most lowly of believers. The invitation is to be with him. It is to mark our lives as Christians. It is to be so commonplace of us that it defines us And yet our tendency is to take that for granted. Years ago, I remember talking to a man um, who was struggling in his relationship with his children. Um, If I remember correctly, he was probably in his mid-40s. His kids ranged from probably early high school to college age. And he was sharing with me the difficulty that he was having in his relationship with his kids. And he was just struggling to figure out where he had gone wrong. Now, I'm not sure that I'm the right person to ask that question to because I was, I don't think I even had kids when I was having this conversation with him and I'm still figuring out parenting for myself. But I remember him kind of describing his approach to parenting and why he did the things that he did. And he said, you know, I look back on my life and on my relationship with my father and he goes, there were so many things that I wanted to do as a kid. There was all kinds of different extracurriculars I wanted to be involved in and places that I wanted to go and things that I wanted to do. And we just never had money to do those things. And so I made the determination that I'm going to provide opportunities for my kids that I never had. Now, in one sense, it's a very good motivation, right? But the way that it played out in his life was it meant that he devoted himself almost entirely to his job got the right education. He was tremendously successful in business. He'd become truly wealthy through his efforts, and he had spent most of his waking time either working or thinking about work. And so to hear him talk about his motivation and his love for his kids all sounded right, but in the process of trying to provide all of those things for his kids, he had robbed them of the thing that they needed and wanted 
most, namely to be with their father. And my guess is if we went around the room and began to share stories of our childhood or maybe even stories of where we find ourselves now in our relationship with our parents, we would find people that talk talk passionately and excitedly about the time that they got to spend with parents and the way that their parents interacted with them, the love that they felt, the opportunities that they felt, the way that they felt connected. And conversely, we would find others who said, man, I never had a relationship like that and I always wanted one. And rich or poor, with a life full of opportunities or a life devoid of opportunities, that same desire rests within all of us. And yet, for many of us, our understanding of the way that a father or a mother's interaction with a child works does not translate to our relationship with God. Because the natural tendency of the human heart towards God is transactional. We've talked a lot about this idea over the last several weeks, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. But what we've talked about is the idea that you can't earn your righteousness, that you can't earn your justification through your works. But do you understand that there are other attitudes within the Christian walk that are just as dangerous to your relationship with God? And I'll just cite two demonstrations this morning. One One of the ideas that is so dangerous for the Christian is that we look at God and what he's done for us with great appreciation. And we determine that we are going to pay him back for what he's done. I always get a little bit concerned when I hear people describe the motivation in their spiritual walk, um, specifically around the areas of service. When I hear them describe solely the idea that they are doing something out of appreciation. Now that, that is a good and a right motivation in the Christian walk, right? We, we do want to appreciate everything that God has done for us and, and therefore to live out of a life of gratitude. But in essence, for many of us, the temptation comes in that we begin to act like the prodigal son. Do you remember the story? The son goes to his father and he says, look, I understand that when you eventually die, you're going to leave an inheritance to me. And so what I want you to do is just give me that inheritance now and then I'll go on my way. And the father gives the son his inheritance. He goes off into a faraway country. He lives a debaucherous, sin-filled life. He lives a life that doesn't honor his father, that certainly doesn't honor God. And he finds himself at a very young age, completely broke, having burned through essentially everything his father had worked his whole life for. And so as he's headed back to go to his father's house, he's thinking in his mind, man, if I can just get back to my father's house, maybe I can be a slave. Maybe my father will take me into his house so that I can be a servant to my father, so that I can actually eat food of substance, so that I can actually live to the age that I would expect I would live. And for many of us, I think our approach to God is very similar to that. Our view of God is transactional. God, if you just give me a place to stay, if you can just provide me with the things that I desperately need, if you can just give me heaven instead of hell, if you can just give me a good life instead of a bad life, whatever it is that you're trying to trade for, the tendency can be to approach God not as a father and not as one who loves us intimately, but instead to approach him as an employer. Just hire me into your service. Give me a task Give me the opportunity to demonstrate, to demonstrate my appreciation, God, and you won't be sorry. And in the process, you, try to, you, you end up robbing yourself 
of the goodness of God. Because the son in going to the father in the, in the story of the prodigal son in saying to him, would you just take me back as a servant? Would you take me back as a slave? He is ultimately saying, God, you are not rich enough, rich enough or generous enough to make me your son. I have to be your servant. And I think for many of us, our tendency in our Christian walk is to do the very same thing. To give away the intimacy of a loving parental relationship for the practicality of an employer-employee relationship. And I think the second temptation for us is that we see the needs of the world around us. And in the words of one author, we try to do more for God than our relationship with him can support. There is no way to properly serve Jesus without first being with him. So Pete Scazzaro in his book says it this way. He says, work for God that is not nourished by a deep interior life with God will eventually be contaminated by other things such as ego, power, needing approval of and from others, and buying into the wrong ideas of success and the mistaken belief that we can't fail. Our experiential sense of worth and validation gradually shifts from God's unconditional love for us in Christ to our works and performance. The joy of Christ gradually disappears. Our activity for God can only properly flow from a life with God. Have you find yourself, found yourself in that position where your joy in Christ has begun to diminish where you can look back at different moments in your life and different experiences, maybe early on when you knew Jesus Christ, and you can remember a fervor and an excitement and a zeal and a passion and a joy that you had in him. And somewhere along the way, you exchanged the truth for a lie. Forgetting that his love is perfect, that it is, that it is holistic, that it is all-encompassing, that it's transformative, forgetting all of those things, that you've exchanged what God intended for your joy in a relationship with him, and instead made your life about what it could be to do for him, forgetting all about the relationship. So don't hear me wrong. By no means am I suggesting that there is not work that we're called to do, but understand that your work is first grounded and rooted in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And certainly, Jesus understood this. It's why he's constantly getting away from the crowds, from the busyness of the world, even from the pull of the needs that were around him, legitimate needs that were around him, in order to spend time with his father. And Jesus here invites his disciples and by extension invites you and I into the very same sort of relationship. See, because of what Jesus Christ did for us, we are forever freed from the need to pay God back or secure God's love and acceptance. And we are free instead to enjoy Christ and to rest in him. So it is no surprise to me that ministry, or rather so it ought to be no surprise that ministry and evangelism and discipleship is not first an adherence to a set of principles, but it is an invitation so that others may enter into the intimacy with Jesus that we already enjoy. But not only was their ministry 
to proclaim that very same gospel. Having been in relationship with Jesus Christ, now to invite others into that relationship with Christ to declare the free and good news of God's transformative gospel through Jesus Christ, but they were also given a measure of authority over the spiritual realm as evidence that the kingdom of God was present in Christ. And this is one of the unique markers of what the apostles did. It's where you see the apostles casting out demons and and healing people. It's where you see amazing stories like what happened when Paul left one of his handkerchiefs behind in the church and people were being healed just by touching a handkerchief that had belonged to Paul. And understand that this isn't weirdo televangelist trying to make a lot of money sort of industry. This is first-generation Christianity demonstration of kingdom power. How incredible this must have been to witness. And with the call that Jesus extended to the disciples to minister out of the relationship that they had with him, he then appoints them. And look what he says beginning in verse 16. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time um, on these particular men's lives. We'll get to see a fuller picture of them as we continue, and I don't want us to lose sight of what I think is most important here. I mean, we could talk at length about Simon, whom Jesus calls Peter which means rock. We could talk about his aggressive, outspoken, alpha male type personality where he's constantly putting his foot in his mouth and making promises that he can't keep and saying things that are simultaneously true about Jesus Christ and not true of himself. We could talk about his magnificent claims of faithfulness to Christ and then ultimately his denial of Christ and that Jesus Christ chose this man to be one of the foundational leaders of the early church. We could talk about James and John, the sons of thunder, and we're not told explicitly why they're called this. Some people have speculated that they were given this title, sons of thunder, as a compliment for their, for their skill set or their courage, or, or maybe, just maybe, it was Jesus' tongue-in-cheek way of describing them because of what they had done in Luke chapter 9. Whereas Jesus prepares to enter a village to proclaim the gospel, the locals there say that they do not want to receive Jesus. And James and John come to Jesus and nonchalantly suggest, maybe we should just call down fire on the village. And I love that description because, at least in my mind, that was kind of their answer to everything. Got a problem? Let's call fire down on it. That was just kind of their go-to, right? And so Jesus calls them the sons of thunder. But we're not given a lot of specific description about these men in this text. And I think that for our purposes, it's because of two things. One, Mark wants us to see that their qualifications were not found in their skill sets or their temperament. But that their qualification was found in the fact that they had been called by Jesus. If you were looking for the kind of skill sets and temperaments to be leaders of the early church, certainly you wouldn't choose a man who is so bipolar in nature that he at once declares his loyalty to Jesus only to deny him hours later. Certainly you wouldn't put together as part of your leadership team two men whose constant answer to things was to call down fire. 
Certainly you wouldn't choose a man like Thomas, the cynical, skeptical personality. But I think what Mark wants us to see is that the calling of these men was not primarily dependent on their qualification or their skill set, but their qualification was in the fact that Jesus had chosen them. In other words, the authority for the role and the ministry that they'd been given was found in Jesus Christ exclusively. And second, notice this. When Jesus went up into the mountain to call, to call the disciples to himself, he didn't call a number that we would have at least immediately expected. He didn't call three or seven, these numbers of perfection. He didn't call ten, certainly a common number within this culture. He calls twelve. And the significance of that choice would have been obvious to everyone who was there because Jesus in this moment looks a lot like Moses. You remember the story? Moses goes up into the mountain and he calls together the 12 tribes and in calling together the 12 tribes, he makes of them a new nation. And now Jesus comes up into the mountain and he calls these 12 men together and this is his way of saying, I am beginning to create a brand new people. A whole new nation, a new humanity, a new community. Calling together the foundations of what will be the church. You see, when Christ invites you to be with him, he is first inviting you to know who you are. And what I mean by that is to have the mirror of the gospel and the mirror of community held up to your life. To allow the gospel to excavate what you've kept hidden. And to reform what is ugly or scary or intimidating about your own experiences or your own heart. And he does that so that the power of his gospel can begin to reveal and transform those areas of your life that have henceforth gone untouched. That in the invitation to be with him, God is extending the means by which he continually will call you back to himself. It's the words of the old song, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. But within the context of this new nation, this new community, this new church that Jesus is beginning to establish here, he's setting a precedent for what it looks like to be a member of that body, to be with him and to be with others. That Christianity is not a lone ranger religion. But it is only by the experience of being with other people and being known by other people and allowing the gospel through the word, through the declaration of God's word and through the lives of others who know you intimately to begin to reform you, that change begins to be brought about. That areas of our heart that we didn't even realize were in need of change begin to be exposed. See, Jesus did not intend you to live the Christian life with the growing, gnawing fear of imposter syndrome. Where externally, you appear to have it all together. And internally, 
you are in constant turmoil and fear. The invitation to be known, the invitation to be with him, is what prepares you to be what God wants you to be in the work of his ministry. Oh, that we as Disciples Church would be a people who surrender to that call. And for some of you, that's terrifying. Because you have experiences, things you've witnessed, things you've been part of, things you've done that you wouldn't want anyone to know. And the question is, do you believe that God in his infinite wisdom, do you believe that Jesus in his infinite love has anything for you other than what he intends for your joy? For your growth in him? And so I want to end this morning with two questions. As we think about how to apply a text like this to our heart, I want you to ask yourself these questions in your heart. First this, what are the things that God might be calling you to do for which you feel unqualified? Just let that question wash over you a bit. What are the things that God might be calling you to do for which you feel unqualified. As we think about the fact that God has gifted his body, that he's given gifts to the church, that he's placed people where we are, not incidentally, what are the things that he might be leading you to do in your own heart today? Not what are the qualifications, not what are the skill sets necessarily, though that certainly can play into it, not not anything that you would put on a resume, but what are the things that he's potentially calling you to do for which you feel unqualified? And are you willing, if you feel like he's calling you to those things, are you willing to actually step out and pursue them? To begin the process of seeking how those things might begin to manifest themselves in your life. And second, do you trust that God will qualify you for the things he's called you? to do? Or like Moses, are you saying, God, if there's anyone else you can send? Do you believe that if God calls you to something, he will actually qualify you to do those things? And my hope for us as a congregation is that we'll begin to wrestle through those questions and not just alone, but within the context of community with the people that God has placed around you, with people with whom you're walking, what does it look like for you to begin to explore those questions, to ask people, hey, this is my sense of maybe what God is doing, and I know it seems crazy, and I know it seems outside of my skill set, and I know it seems outside of my experience, and I know I may or may not actually show an aptitude for these things, but what does it look like for us to begin to, for us to, begin to explore and pray through and consider the things that God might be doing in our midst? And the biggest question of all is, will you actually submit yourself to those things? After being with him, after spending time with him, after allowing the gospel to excavate and reveal your heart, will you actually be faithful, as these disciples were, to follow him into the unknown? In ways that they would not have imagined, both to be used by God, 
and in most of their circumstances, even to die for God. But do you understand that they didn't get there all in one, all in one day? That was a pathway for them that began at this moment. And it's an invitation that Jesus Christ extends to us in the very same way today. Let's consider those things. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the work that it does in revealing our own heart. And God, we thank you that the work of the gospel doesn't stop at revealing ourselves. It doesn't stop at showing me who I am, but it then shows me also what I need to be. And God, I thank you that you didn't just give us a picture of who we are and who we need to be and and then tell us to go find it, but that you in your spirit indwelling us, leading us within the context of community with the declaration of the gospel and with your word opened in front of us that you are walking us through those steps. God, I pray for those in this room who would say that maybe they've been experiencing a sense of your calling and have no idea what it means or how to get there. God, would you, would you allow them in this moment to feel the freedom to begin to pursue those things? Would they see an open door through which you're calling them to walk? God, what we want is to have hearts that are obedient to you, that trust you, that trust you to lead us into things that we may not understand, that trust you to qualify us for things for which we feel unqualified. And we thank you that through the example of the disciples, we thank you that to use that old phrase, that you do not call the qualified, but rather you qualify the called. That in your graciousness and in your mercy, you will not allow us to carry the credit or the blame but that what you call us to do is be faithful in the ministry that you've given us. God, help us to be open, responsive, submissive, obedient. Help us to surrender to your call in our lives. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.